If you've grown up believing that the boogeyman looks a certain way, acts a certain way, and is found in certain places, then you're in for a nasty surprise when you discover the truth. Those with the deepest darkness within them often look no different to you nor I. And those who commit the most atrocious acts are often the people you would suspect the least. What do you do when you come face to face with pure evil, but it doesn't look the way you thought it would? How do you really spot a serial killer? This is the case of the unsuspecting predator and the serial offender, Jokobus Petras Haldenhuis. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Jakobus Petrus Haldenhuis was born in 1967 in Benoni, Johannesburg. He would come to be known to many as Quobus during his lifetime, and so that is how I will be referring to him for the remainder of this video. Quobus was an only child, and his parents kept very much to themselves, to the extent that he didn't even know how long they had been married, or even the years that they were born. Yeah, that's pretty much how things were in the home. And so he grew up in a conservative Afrikaans household, with a family that was typical of many others at the time. By that, I mean religion was incredibly important, corporal punishment was the norm, and the family was conventional in many ways. However, the major difference in his home, as opposed to many other God-fearing Afrikaans households of the time, was that his mother was in charge, and she was the one who wore the pants. Not incredibly common during this time period or even in this area. She was also known, according to later court documents, to be somewhat of a zealot, and she believed that her home was in some way possessed by the devil. According to a family member, when Corbus was around two years old, his mother would claim that little men told her that she must kill him. She had then claimed that Satan himself was attacking her, and so she had contacted clergymen to drive him out of her home. And whilst his mother was one way, his father was the complete opposite. He was more subservient and introverted. Both of his parents, however, could be considered as being quite unaffectionate towards him as he matured. This particular upbringing would have an impact on Corbus, perhaps in far more ways than one could possibly imagine. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Corbus grew up a quite well-behaved child, according to his parents. He, however, was lonely, with not many friends or social interactions. Although there was not much affection for the most part between himself and his mother, the bond that the two shared was extremely strong. Yeah, I know it sounds a little bit contradictory, so let me explain what I mean. His mother was everywhere and in every part of his daily activities and actions. 
Even when he had the opportunity to leave the house and go on school camps, known as Voortrekker camps, his mother would insist on accompanying him. She frowned upon him having friends and those type of interactions. As a result, he often felt extremely isolated, rejected and lonely. To add to those feelings, he would also become sick in grade 5 and he ended up missing most of the school year. His mother, of course, was not having that and she insisted that he repeat the year. Not an illogical request in hindsight, but to Corbus, this was the year that everything would begin to change. It started off small with him beginning to steal, often just petty theft and sometimes money from his mother's purse. Then one day, on the rare occasion where his mother had left him home alone, she had returned to find him pleasuring himself, an activity that was forbidden in their home. She was livid and he was punished severely. Keep in mind, he was 12 years old at the time. His behavior also grew erratic, and in grade 7, although he had made prefect, he ended up failing that year. But he was promoted to high school anyways, based on his age. Yeah, not the greatest reason, but anyways. And so, high school, which he completed at a trade school, was fairly uneventful. Family life was as it had always been. His mother was domineering, but also detached. One strange activity, though, that she engaged with Corbus in, but only once he had reached adolescence, was wrestling. And that was really the sum of their interactions, besides when she was telling him that women were evil and sinful and that he should stay away from them. She would also insist that he was to keep his door open whenever he was in the bathroom, whether he was using the toilet or bathing. This was so that she could make sure that he was not pleasuring himself, as any type of sexual activity was wrong and punishable, according to God. But we'll talk more about that, those interactions, and the possible ramifications a little bit later. After matriculating, with the bare minimum, mind you, Corbus applied to the Navy but he was turned down. His mother loved to show him off to anyone and everyone, so securing him a good job would have been a goal for her, first and foremost. He then applied to the post office as well as the South African police, but was once again met with rejection. Quite a typical pattern in his life at this point. And so, with his mother's insistence, he had applied to become a police officer of the railway, and was accepted. Shortly after he began working there, he received the invitation to join the Navy. But as he was already contracted and in another job, he had to pass up that opportunity, much to his dismay. Although he did not care much for this job, it would open up the path to his later destructive actions. It was also during this job that he would travel overseas often, and it was there that he was exposed to a variety of pornography, much of which was not available in South Africa at the time. And here, away from his mother, he was able to build up not only a substantial collection of such videos and magazines, but also he had the opportunity to visit nightclubs and other social places. His parents and his pastor would later speak to him about the nature of the magazines and the material he had collected, but he would in no way or form make any attempt to get rid of them. 
At this stage, he was now out of his parents' home and he was working full-time. His job often entailed him working alone. And so the pattern of behavior he had developed within his childhood extended into his adulthood. And for the most part, he was often still in isolation to an extent. He would be described by all who knew him as somewhat of a loner, an introvert, a man who kept very much to himself and didn't really make any friends. In 1989 though, whilst at church with his parents, he met the girl he later planned to spend the rest of his life with, Nadine. She had an intellectual disability, but that didn't bother Corbus in the least, and the two fell in love and they fell fast. They would spend much time in each other's company, writing love letters, listening to music, and watching videos together. She would later be the one that Corbus would long for. And to many, it appeared that she was the one person that Corbus would truly connect with. Their relationship was wholesome and full of love, and that extended to the bedroom too. Violence played no role or part there. Although their relationship was thriving, Corbus lacked ambition, and he didn't really have the drive to apply for certain positions or to try and gain promotions. This unfortunately did not sit well with Nadine's father, who expected him to do more, to provide a better home for his daughter, and to achieve bigger goals. Corbus was at this time performing the duties of a regular policeman, with an industry-issued firearm, as the railway police had been incorporated into the South African police. Nadine's father, however, wanted him to sit for a sergeant examination. Corbus did not have that goal in mind, as already being surrounded by more people than usual and working within the townships of Alexandra was taking its toll on him. And so he would soon turn to some less sanctioned methods of relieving stress and achieving some excitement in his life. On the morning of the 12th of May 1989, Corbus was at his parents' home in Benoni, playing video games. However, he soon grew bored and decided to entertain himself in another way. No, it's not what you're thinking. He took a ladder and placed it against the wall of the garage outside. He then climbed onto the roof of the garage and jumped down into the neighbor's backyard. Initially, he wanted to steal something, as he often did just for kicks. But at that precise moment, he saw the housekeeper exiting her room. 21-year-old Franciwa Tunzi screamed when she saw this unknown man in the yard. He promptly pushed her back into her room. He hit her in the stomach in an attempt to keep her quiet, and whilst he was attacking her, he tore at her clothing. She kept fighting for her life, and so he proceeded to take a brick that was under her bed, hit her with it, and then strangle her to death. Whether or not he had raped her could not be established. Not only because he would not admit to it, but also because he had set some paper on fire and dropped the burning paper onto her body. The probability that she was assaulted in that manner by Corbus is high. But during that time in the country, the apartheid era, and in the particular prominent conservative Afrikaans area they were in, I'm sure admitting to having intercourse with a person of color would have been seen as a massive disgrace and sin. I mean, if forcing yourself upon someone and then killing them was not bad enough as it was. But I digress. In April of 1990, he asked Nadine to marry him. 
She said yes. Corbus and Nadine were then set to be married in October of 1991. However, after Corbus and her father had become embroiled in an argument one night over the phone, her father had called the entire wedding off. Yes, this was still the era where the man of the house had the final say. Her father was sick of Corbus's lack of ambition. And what he said went. I mean, in hindsight, without knowing it, it was the best decision he ever made for her. But it was at this point that Corbus's behavior would begin to spiral. Corbus was living in the police barracks in Norwood. On the evening of the 2nd of November, 1991, he grew bored whilst watching television and decided to go for a walk. He had then passed an apartment building, Grantwood closed flats, and he had noticed an open window. Noticing no one around to watch him, he had then climbed through the open window, he had stolen 13 CDs, climbed out and returned to his room. For him, the act of stealing was the opportunity to feel something. But, like many serial offenders, his desires escalated. The following evening, he decided to have some fun again. This time he went no further than the block of flats right next to his barracks. He entered through an open window again. Yes, people of that time were a lot less guarded than they are now. And once inside, he had stolen four CDs, a CD player and two speakers. It was later alleged that he gifted the CD player and CDs to his ex-fiancée Nadine, whom he was still very much in love with. On his way out, he then saw BMW car keys on the table, and so he decided to take the car too. But Grand Theft Auto was not his thing, so he took it on a joyride and returned that night to the barracks with it. Keep in mind it had been reported stolen, but yet he still parked it in front of a building teeming with police right by the police station. Yeah. The following day, he had then returned it to its parking spot and he had thrown the keys through the open window. It would appear that the owner of the flat, whom I will refer to as Miss F, was probably highly confused but incredibly thankful that her vehicle had been returned. However, her luck would soon be changing. Three days later, on the 6th of November, Corbus would return to the apartment of the 37-year-old Mrs. F. This time, though, he was there for far more nefarious reasons than just petty theft. He found her sleeping in her bed, and so he had undressed. Obviously, she had heard strange noises, and she woke up terrified to see this man in her home, and so she had asked him what he wanted. He had then threatened her with his 9mm service pistol. She tried to placate him and she begged him to put the gun down. She told him that he didn't seem like a violent person, and to him, in his mind, that appeared to be a challenge. He proceeded to strong arm her, showing her just how violent he could be before he raped her. However, he struggled to get his manhood to perform the way in which he wanted it to. When she had asked him why he did what he did, he simply responded that he did it for fun. She asked him if he was scared, presumably because she had seen his face. He had responded by telling her that he didn't care. He ripped out her telephone, told her to put the duvet over her head, and he had exited through the window. And he continued with his night as though nothing had even happened. 
As the days passed and no one came looking for him and there seemed to be no consequences to his actions, he grew in confidence. On the 26th of November, 20 days after the attack of Miss F, he took another stroll around the Norwood neighborhood. He noticed a handbag through an open window of a ground floor apartment in Grant Close. He had climbed through the window, taken 50 rand out of the purse that he had spotted, and then he had silently exited. During this time, there had been an older woman sitting in the lounge, but she was none the wiser to his presence. Later that night, he felt as though he had unfinished business, and so he had returned to the flat to do the unthinkable. The 68-year-old woman, Mrs. M, woke up to Corbus standing in her room, pointing a pistol at her. She screamed in fear, of course, and then he hit her in the head with his pistol. At this point, he began to undress himself as well as her. He then proceeded to rape her. After he was done, he then asked her for money. Yeah, I kid you not. She would go on to tell him that the money she had was locked away. And his response? Well, he had kissed her and then raped her again. An almost 70-year-old woman. Despicable, to say the least. He then promptly got dressed threw a blanket over her, wished her good night, and told her that she should sleep well. Yeah, because getting a good night's rest would totally be possible after that ordeal. And with that last farewell, he was gone, back through the window and into the night. Once again, the days passed and nothing seemed to happen, and so Corbus's confidence grew. Another 20 days later, on the 16th of December, he began to watch the home of a 27-year-old woman, Juliet Margaret Hitra. He had walked past the home several times that evening, but the inhabitants, two women and a man, were still up and about. He was patient though. Eventually, later on in the evening, he entered the home through an unlocked sliding door in the lounge. He first went to the man's room, but it was empty. He then walked to one of the other bedrooms and he saw a purse on the table. But of course, it was pitch dark and he couldn't see a thing. With the great logical thought of someone who had illegally entered another person's property in the dead of night, he decided to switch the lights on. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. Julia then woke up, completely horrified to see this strange man standing illuminated in her room. He began to attack her as she had asked him what he wanted with her. He then hit her on the back of the head with his pistol. This left her dazed and whilst she was in that state, he raped her. Once he was done with her though, he decided that she had seen him properly and thus she had to die. And so he shot her through the temple. He took the notes, but not the coins, from her purse. He exited the home through the same door that he had entered previously. And so he arrived back home, as though nothing out of the ordinary had even occurred that evening. And once again, there were no consequences. Two weeks went by. And on the 30th of December, as everyone was getting ready to bring in the new year, he decided to strike again. This time it was another complex right next to the barracks. 27-year-old Jennifer Matfield, who was asleep in her bed, 
was awoken to the lights being switched on and a strange man standing in her room. As one would imagine, she was terrified and she screamed. Corbus then proceeded to hit her in the head with his pistol, rip off her pajamas and rape her. She asked to go to the bathroom after he had finished and he so kindly obliged but on the condition that he accompanied her. He then instructed her to take a bath, which she did. He then dressed himself and stood in the door of the bathroom, smoking a cigarette. In his mind, he already knew that she was as good as dead, as she had seen his face properly. He pulled out his pistol, quite calm and collected, and as she turned away in fear, he shot her in the back of the head and left. Her body was discovered in her bathtub by her flatmate the next day. Although no one had come seeking him up until this point, he didn't realize that he had slipped up. Police officers on the Matfield crime scene found not only fingerprints, but footprints, leading from the block of flats to the wall that separated the barracks from the complex. They also found fresh footprints on the barracks side of the wall, and so a mold was taken. Look, technology was definitely not near as advanced as it is today, but they did what they could. During all of this, Kubus was quite aware of what was happening, as he was interacting with police officers on the daily, given the fact that he was living in the police barracks. At this point, the news was showcasing the Norwood serial rapist and killer, and many were living in fear. Many single women who could leave the area temporarily did so, and the sale of security systems and, of course, firearms had drastically increased. Corbus was worried, to an extent, that is. But if his extramural nighttime activities were bothering him, it didn't show. He had no changes in his sleeping or eating patterns, and he stated in later conversations that he would play video games after the murders to unwind. He did, however, begin to sleep with his pistol right next to his bed, as his plan was to end his life should he ever be discovered. After the murder in the complex next door, all the men in the barracks were ordered to assemble and have their fingerprints taken. This was after detectives suspected that the murderer could be someone in the barracks. Corbus would later state that at this point, he allegedly decided that when the time came, he would give himself up. But for some reason or the other, no one arrived to take the fingerprints. And without yet another consequence, Corbus would continue his reign of terror in the months to follow. For four months, he was inactive. In later statements, he would say that during these months, he was able to control that thing within him. Whether or not this is true and there are other cases, we cannot know. It was back in Brakpan that he would find his next victim. Perhaps in his mind he believed that if he moved his crimes to a different location, he would lower his risk of discovery. His next victim was an even older woman, 74-year-old Susanna Elizabeth van Drach. She was alone in her flatlet, just two doors down from where Nadine's parents lived. For this reason, it is assumed that he was in Brakpan to visit Nadine. 
In the evening, he entered Susanna's home through the sliding door, and like he had done in previous attacks, he switched the light on. Thinking it might not have been a great plan, he switched the light off again and found a torch. In the main bedroom, he had also found a handbag with some change in it. However, unbeknownst to him, Susanna had actually woken up when the light had been switched on and she screamed when she saw this unknown man standing in her safe space. He then hit her with his pistol. She wasn't going down without a fight though and she grabbed his hands. He shot her in the face. Things had veered far from the plan he perhaps had in his mind. He had spent three hours sitting in the lounge before he left the crime scene. His reasoning was that he was worried someone would have heard the shots and so he didn't want to be seen walking around the neighborhood. Although Kobus was not yet a person of interest, in the background, much like the case I discussed last week, the police were making interesting connections and headway. The case of the Norwood attacks was being handled by Warrant Officer Miles, who was stationed at the Norwood Detective Unit. He was convinced that his suspect was a resident in the Norwood barracks, and that thought was quite distressing to him, seeing as though that would mean that the perpetrator was one of his colleagues. The only issue was that the news of the case and its progress was trickling down through the barracks and Kurbas caught wind of the situation. He thus opted to play it safe, in his eyes at least, and he requested a transfer back to his parents' hometown of Benoni. His transfer was granted and in no time at all, Kurbas was back in the East Rand. On the 15th of July 1992, Corbus was back to his first modus operandi, climbing over a few fences into his neighbor's yard. This particular neighbor had a 16-year-old daughter, Veronica. Corbus had spotted an open door at the back of the house, almost an invitation for him to enter. And as he had approached it, Veronica had come outside. Extremely confused and scared, she had asked him what he was doing in their yard. He then pointed his pistol at her, she screamed and she ran inside. He followed her, caught up with her and of course her strength was no match for a grown man. He dragged her to the bedroom, removed her top and instructed her to remove her jeans. She obeyed his orders, terrified. She then asked him what he wanted yet again. She had responded and told him that there was money in her mother's room and she asked him if she could put a gown on so she could go and fetch it. He refused and so she went in the state that she was to her mother's room where she took 150 rand from the cupboard and gave it to him. After he had received what he wanted financially from her, he had then proceeded to try and take what he wanted sexually from her. But he could not manage to complete the deed. However, he did climax in any case. After he was done with her, he shot her in the forehead. He then picked up the ballistic casing and made his way out of the home. But before he did that, he made sure to take the six rand in coins that were sitting in a purse in the lounge. So as I mentioned, the previous cases were being investigated by the Norwood Police Department. This case, however, was investigated by a different police department as it had occurred in a different area. In a stroke of luck, however, the pathologist, Dr. Vernon Kemp, who performed the autopsy on Veronica Taylor, was the same man who performed the post-mortems on the victims of the unknown Norwood perpetrator. 
he noticed similarities and had a suspicion that the same person who was responsible for those deaths was also responsible for Veronica's death. And so the different police departments got in touch with one another and shared their intel. And that was when there was a major break in the case. It was as a result of these investigations that the records of enlisted police officers were checked, in particular for those who had been transferred to the East Rand in the past month. That narrowed down the potential perps to two individuals. But Corbus was not considered the main suspect, as his blood group differed to the DNA found on the scene. You see, on the scene, the fluids tested came back as O positive, but Corbus's blood group was A positive. Right, so I'm sure at this point you may be a little bit confused, but don't worry, I will explain super soon. On the 21st of July 1992, Captain Miles went to the Internal Stability Unit in Benoni, where Corbus was stationed. He fully intended to speak to the other man on the list, but in another twist of fate, that man happened to be out on duty. But do you know who was there? Yeah, you guessed it, Corbus. Corbus heard the news that Captain Miles was coming and quite sneakily, might I add, swapped out his service pistol for another from the armory. During their meeting, he appeared nervous and refused to answer whether he had heard of Veronica's murder, even though it occurred close to his parents' home. He was then questioned about the Norwood murders, but once again refused to answer. Captain Miles then took possession of Corbus's weapon and arrested him. He was 25 years old at the time. Corbus was then taken to the Norwood police station, where a full set of fingerprints were done. And what do you know, there were a match for the fingerprints found at Jennifer Matfield's crime scene. Corbus didn't really have much to say in the face of hard evidence, and so he had confessed. He further stated that he had swapped his pistol in Benoni. And so after both pistols were sent to the Forensic Science Laboratory in Pretoria, the ballistic report came back with a positive match to the evidence found at some of the crime scenes. And now let me quickly explain the deal with the different blood groups. It's actually quite fascinating and extremely rare. Corvus is one of very few known people whose blood group as identified from his semen differs from that identified in his blood. So for example, when fluid samples were retrieved from the crime scene, the blood tested was O positive. However, his blood type when drawing blood is A positive. Interestingly enough, a notorious Russian serial killer, Andrei Chikatelo, shared this rare phenomenon in blood grouping. During the weeks that followed his arrest, Quibus was interviewed by both criminologists and psychologists. Although it was initially stated that he suffered from schizoid personality disorder and that biophysical factors could have influenced the serotonin levels in his brain, this diagnosis could not be confirmed. Therefore, biophysical dysfunction was discounted as unproven speculation. And Corbus was found fit to stand trial. At the end of the trial, he was asked if he had anything to say. He did. He stated that he knew he was a sinner and he asked people to forgive him. The consulting criminologist on the case, the infamous Irma Labashkachny, would say that these regrets, however, were stated in a cold and distant tone and so she doubted their sincerity. She asserted her belief that should Corbus ever be freed, 
he would, without doubt, commit the same offences again. On the 24th of September 1993, Judge R. Kluter sentenced Jokobus Petras Galdenhuis to five death sentences for the murders, three life sentences for rape, 12 years for robbery, and 35 months for theft and for using a vehicle without the owner's permission. Unfortunately for others, but fortunately for him, the death sentence was abolished before he faced the noose. And so he still remains in jail to this day, serving his sentence. At this point, there's so much to unwrap and discuss around this case in order to aid understanding a little bit more about the mind behind the macabre. For this reason, I will be discussing several psychological concepts that you may or may not be aware of, but as always, I will be discussing them in a simplified and easy to understand manner and format. When I discuss the psychology of serial offenders, there are generally two groups of explanations that are drawn. Either antisocial personality disorder, often known as psychopathy, or developmental disturbances during childhood. As you may be aware by now, APD was not a diagnosis in Quilbus's case, and so I'd like to delve a little bit into the developmental side of things. As a child, Quilbus's parents were quite distant and detached emotionally from him. He stated that he could not remember a time when his mother had told him that she loved him. He would have thus most likely experienced quite strong feelings of rejection. For a developing young mind, this could impact the way he would handle situations in later years. A difficult relationship with his mother could in some cases be a pathway to him desiring to express his manhood and prove himself to her, perhaps in an unconscious manner. The idea of Freud's Oedipus complex comes to mind. The Oedipus complex in plain terms describes feelings of a boy wanting to replace his father and possess his mother. I'm sure you've sometimes heard young children say that they want to grow up and marry mommy or daddy. Keep in mind, the Oedipus complex is quite controversial, like some of Freud's other theories, and the research is still out on whether it has a place in furthering understanding of behavior. Freud believed that this understanding would result in conflict being experienced. This conflict, however, could be resolved through the process of identification, which involved the child adopting the characteristics of the same sex parent. So for Quibus, this desire, according to Freud, would have been resolved through the adoption of characteristics of his father. However, he lacked paternal identification to his father, as according to reports and his own statements, the man was a more recessive, quiet character. His family did not discuss sex or sexual matters. That topic was taboo. So when he did eventually begin to show and feel an interest in girls, he was scared of what would happen. Adult material sells a narrative of a fantasy world where domination, power, and control is not only possible, but encouraged in many cases. Corbus's fascination with this adult material could also have acted as an aid to developing a fantasy world with scenarios that should and would normally never occur in real life. And then to that, add some of Freud's theories. 
Freudian theory would suggest that on a subconscious level, he probably experienced the desire to express his manhood and prove himself to his mother. He would do this by raping his victims, as that gave him a sense of control and power. However, he would struggle at times when, for whatever reason, he felt the woman posed a threat to him. And on the other side of the coin, he had never experienced any of these sexual difficulties in his intimate relationship with Nadine, his first serious relationship with the woman so very different to his mother, a woman he viewed in a whole different light. So instead of internalizing his desires and his undealt with feelings towards his mother, he externalized them, taking everything outward and taking out his frustrations on those he chose to attack. And you know that little voice in your head that sometimes tells you that something is a bad idea? Well, his little voice was just not that loud. It's actually part and parcel of another psychological theory by the infamous Freud too, one that is often mentioned when discussing serial killer cases. And this is the concept of the id, ego, and superego. In a nutshell, the id is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives, along with hidden memories. Although the id is thought to be present at birth and remains the almost childlike part of the mind for the years to follow, as the individual grows older, they develop their ego and superego. The id demands immediate satisfaction of the most basic wants and needs. And the ego, although interested in seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, wants to achieve this in a realistic manner. And it largely accomplishes this due to the development of the superego, which operates as a moral con and the part of a person's mind or personality that instructs them on how to behave based on learned morals and values. Still with me? Let me give you a scenario to explain it further. Let's imagine you are sitting in traffic. You're on your way home after a long day at the office and you're just dreaming about getting out of your work clothing, soaking in the tub or flopping on the couch and watching Netflix. But instead, here you are stuck behind bumper to bumper traffic and just as it becomes your turn to feed into the highway or take that off ramp you are cut off by a vehicle that comes zooming up the emergency lane that was not made for it mind you and slips in so quickly in front of you so fast that you end up having to slam on your brakes at this point you're fuming and your first thought is to get out of your car and scream some expletives at this driver. That's your edit work. But instead of getting out of your vehicle, you may vocalize some choice words, but you stay put. That rational thought is your ego at play. And you decide to stay put because you realized that attacking another person for cutting you off is not the wisest or safest action you can take as an adult. And that incredibly mature conclusion is thanks to your superego. This is an important concept or theory to understand within Freud's work, as in his eyes, a healthy, well-functioning personality is focused on the balance of all three. So a child is born with an id, fully intact, their instinctual mind ruling. However, it is during the latency stage, around the ages of 6 to 12 years old, that their ego and superego really starts to develop. During this time, they develop social skills, values, and relationships with peers, 
as well as adults outside of the family. Learning such skills are vital for future development and self-confidence. Unfortunately, Kubus did not have access to much privacy or the opportunity to socialize with very many people outside of his family, besides his opportunities that he would get at school. So for a large part, his social skills were stunted and limited. His mother did not approve of his friends and she believed that friendships with girls would tempt him into having His isolation would only become more pronounced in his adult years. In this way, his ego and superego did not have the chance to reach full potential, per se. His moral compass was largely determined by his mother's belief structure and the experiences he had as a developing child. Some may even go as far as to state that his superego was lacking because he lacked a strong male authority figure in his life. Although I personally find that a bit sexist, as I know of many strong, amazing women who have single-handedly raised children without a strong male figure in the home, and they've turned out just fine. I'm just saying. It would appear that his superego was much weaker than the average person. Instead of having a strong moral compass, his id, his more primal urges, took the helm just prior and during his attacks with no intervention from any other aspects of his mind. So it's evident that Corbus was first and foremost a serial killer, right? Well, yes, I guess, according to the widely accepted definition. But there is the question of whether his initial desire to rape his victims led to murder or if murder was on his mind all along. Did his sexual urges and fantasies ultimately give way to his violent tendencies? Or did he commit the murders simply to avoid being caught? for his own self-preservation. Although he never spoke of specific motives, other than saying that he did what he did for adventure as a way to escape boredom, it's evident that he held long-term fantasies, something he has in common with many other serial offenders. In his mind, in the perfect blueprint he constructed, things played out perfectly. But in real life, things don't always go according to plan. Sometimes he did not manage to climax or even penetrate his victims. Sometimes they fought back even more than he expected. Each situation led to him only having a few moments, a few seconds where he felt like he had control and power before it was all over again. He was then left continuously searching for that feeling, that control, that emotion, that power that he lacked. Therefore, it would appear that it was not so much about the age or physical characteristics of the victim, but rather about the way in which he handled the situation. The reports differed on whether or not he deliberately chose certain victims, as some evidence I discovered stated that he had visited some of the victims posing as a concerned police officer. Whether or not that is true, though, is another story. Remember, kids, don't believe everything you read online. He did outrightly claim though to the criminologist that it didn't matter what a victim looked like or their age. For him it was about sexual gratification and cementing his masculinity. His behavior with his victims was erratic to say the least. Often he would offer them a cup of coffee or give them a blanket and in one case he even offered to run a bath for one of his victims. 
jobs. He would later state, however, that he would only rape the woman because he was armed. He said that if he didn't have his weapon with him, he wouldn't have felt as strong. In his own words, having access to a gun gave him the guts to carry on. Renowned clinical psychologist and criminologist Gerard Labishkachny would attest to Quibbers being void of emotion, gaining some sort of feelings from the criminal acts he committed. And he would go on to state that the thing he enjoyed most about the murders he committed was the star-shaped indentation that his pistol left on the forehead of his victims. Charming. Whether he was primarily a serial rapist who ended up killing to cover his tracks, or whether murder was always in his agenda, it's irrelevant in the bigger picture. He still existed as a member of the police, a group of individuals who were supposed to protect and serve. He assimilated into their space without detection. He appeared like any other person you would pass on the street. If you looked at him, you would never imagine the depths of darkness that existed within his mind. And if you were his chosen victim, you would have never even seen it coming. Until next week, stay safe, stay vigilant, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!